has been seen on uh, the Civil War Journal series. And uh, in the 1995 battlefield tour of Charleston, Buford, and Savannah, he made a very good presentation on the Port Royal experiment and the history of Buford, uh, South Carolina during the Civil War. Uh, Steve is the author of two books. One is the history of blockade running uh, during the Civil War. And uh, the official title is Lifeline of the Confederacy, Blockade Running During the Civil War, which came out in 1991. Uh, some have uh, recommended this as uh, one of the best books, if not the best book on blockade running uh, ever uh, uh, authored. Uh, he's also the author of uh, The Gate of Hell, the campaign for Charleston Harbor, 1863. And uh, this is the uh, topic that he talked about uh, last night uh, at the Milwaukee Roundtable. It was an extremely good uh, talk. And that's uh, what uh, his talk will be about tonight. So here is the presentation, The Gate of Hell, by Dr. Stephen R. Wise. Okay, I think I have it. Everybody can hear me, I hope? Okay, I'm going to talk to you tonight about the Civil War campaign for Charleston. And it's a great pleasure to be here in, my, in Chicago. My father actually worked here in 1939, 1940, he worked at one of the hotels, and I wish I could remember which one. Um, but uh, this is the area I want to be talking about uh, in my talk, and I just want to give you sort of a little brief overview, give you an idea of what it's about. The uh, campaign for Charleston in uh, 1863, it's going to be a very grueling, hard-fought campaign. It's gained some publicity of late because, if you, of course, remember the movie Glory and the movie's final scene is this great charge, the 54th Massachusetts. But the battle is a lot more than this. It's one of the most intense campaigns fought during the Civil War. It involves fascinating personalities, modern military practices, extensive use of black troops, combined Army and Navy operations, ironclad warships, long-range artillery bombardments, all of these things just mixed together. Uh, today, uh, Morris Island is the last undeveloped barrier island around Charleston, and that's mainly because there's no bridge that's been built to it as yet. But this is Morris Island right here. And in 1860, the main ship channel coming into Charleston actually came along in this direction here. It came along here, it passed Folly Island, went past Morris Island, the Charleston Lighthouse sat right on the end here of Morris Island. It came up and then passed between Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie into Charleston Harbor. What makes Morris Island very important in my story is the fact that Cummings Point, this little tip of Morris Island right here, that's the closest landmass to Fort Sumter. It's about half mile, three quarters of a mile from Fort Sumter. And it also faces Fort Sumter's weakest wall. Fort Sumter was Charleston's primary fortification. It guards the entrance of the harbor. Its cannon, boy, let me go back here a little bit. Here we go. Its cannon, especially those mounted on the top tier, these are the most important guns in Fort Sumter because they could fire down on the decks of vessels and that caused a lot of trouble. These, these, all these different artillery pieces up here. You can see the walls that commanded the channel coming in had three tiers to them, but the gorge wall, the wall that faces Morris Island, the weakest wall that's actually not as thick as the other walls, only has this top tier. 
When Fort Sumter was built, the uh, artillery of that era was such that it fired very large balls. Smoothbore artillery fired heavy balls uh, weighing about 125 pounds. It could only chip a few inches at a time at the br at brick walls of Fort Sumter. The engineers believed Fort Sumter to be invulnerable, and they also didn't expect Fort Sumter to be attacked by from the land. Of course, they're going to be wrong in both cases in 1860. In 1860, uh, South Carolina will secede from the Union. The federal garrison at Fort Moultrie will flee to Fort Sumter. The men in uh, Fort Sumter will watch as the Southerners built batteries to fire on the fort. The uh, Confederates' most effective batteries are going to be those located on Cummings Point, on the tip of Morris Island. Uh, they had a number of heavy Columbiads there. They also had, uh, really, if you might say, the war's first rifled artillery, a very small field piece, a Blakely gun, that could drill holes into the walls of Fort Sumter. Of course, we all know the story of Fort Sumter. It's going to be captured rather quickly at the start of the war. And after Fort Sumter was captured, the Confederates began to realign their defenses. Cannon that had pointed at Fort Sumter were repositioned to turn back new aggressors. Initially, the batteries at Morris Island were abandoned and new works and stronger positions built. Now, there really are two ways to attack Charleston. One was the way the British did it in the, in the American Revolution. They came into the Stono River down here, and they sailed up the Stono River. They landed some men on James Island. These guys then would march over James Island, and they captured Fort Johnson. And you can see this effectively gets around all your harbor defenses and the British continued on up. They landed men on the mainland. They crossed over and came at Charleston from the rear. So the Confederates are going to build fortifications down here on Coles Island to deny the Union use of the Stoner River. The other way to get at Charleston is to come straight up the main ship channel and try to force your way between Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie into the harbor. The Confederates are going to put uh, their heaviest guns at Fort Sumter, again on the top tier of Fort Sumter. Uh, Fort Moultrie will be re rebuilt and made into a very strong fortification. And they're going to run a series of obstructions between Fort Moultrie and Fort Sumter. And at first, these will be ropes and some logs. And later, by late 1862, they begin placing explosive canisters, referred to as torpedoes, among these obstructions so that if they strike an enemy vessel, they'll explode. There was a passageway through the obstruction. Initially, it was placed right next to Fort Sumter. So if a vessel wanted to try to force its way into the harbor and avoid the obstructions, it had to go right under the walls of Fort Sumter. And then these guns could just fire right through the vessel. What's going to happen in 1862, in the summer of 1862, the Confederates are going to be running short of men. They're worried that certain fortifications can be cut off by the Union fleet, so they're going to abandon Coles Island and realign fortifications a much farther up the Stono River. When this occurred, the Confederates are going to have to build new defenses because once they abandon Coles Island, that leaves vulnerable. It means there's, the Union troops could land on Fowley and or Morris Island. So they begin building new defenses, and they're going to choose to build them on Morris Island. They're going to try to set up five different fortifications to guard uh, Morris Island, keep enemy troops off and such. One will be around the lighthouse at Lighthouse Inland. They'll build a number of small detached batteries here. They're going to build Battery Wagner at the point where the island actually drops down, right in front of Battery Wagner, it drops down to only 25 yards in width. And then Battery Greg, which is built primarily to fire down the ship channel. 
They also planned some works over here on Black Island that could sweep Lighthouse Inlet. And if you're familiar with the old floating battery that had fired on Fort Sumter, they were going to tow it and anchor it right here and turn it into a battery that could fire across Morris Island. Well, the floating battery is never going to really get put into position. The fortifications on Black Island will never really get started. Uh, the fortifications on Lighthouse Inlet will be started, but they'll be incomplete uh, by the time of the attack. Wagner will be finished and Greg will be finished. I'm going to try to not have too much of this feedback here. By early 1863, the overall commander was General Pierre G.T. Beauregard, considered by many to be the South's best engineering officer. Working under Beauregard was Brigadier General Roswell Sabine Ripley, who commanded the Charleston District. Ripley had been uh, born in Ohio, but he had, when he graduated from West Point, he had served in the South and eventually married into Charleston's prominent Middleton family. Beauregard and Ripley's defenses were first tested in April of 1863 when a squadron of federal ironclads, including a number of the turreted monitors, tried to force their way into Charleston Harbor. They're going to be turned back by two things. Uh, the obstructions, the obstructions are going to frighten the northern sailors since it was known that they contained some explosive devices and they feared uh, these torpedoes, and also the heavy artillery on the top of Fort Sumter, which again could fire down on the decks of these monitors and actually in some cases broke, broke the plates, the iron plates of the monitors. After the attack, the Federals realized that any assault against Charleston would have to be a joint Army and Navy venture. To carry out the new plan, they needed a forward base, and it just so happened they had one. For while the Navy was battered by Fort Sumter, a brigade of soldiers had been landed on Folly Island. This is the barrier island next to Morris Island. Though the capture was bloodless, the soldiers did not think very highly of their new home. Covered by sand dunes laced with dense pine and palmetto growths, the island was described by a soldier of the 7th New Hampshire as one of the most dreary and worthless collections of sand hills to be found on the coast. Another wrote, Folly Island is the name of the spot we inhabit, so-called probably because, as someone expressed it, some fool landed here a long time ago. He didn't stay long. The garrison spent its time building defenses along the southern half of the island. Other than this and some picket duty, the men had very little to do, causing a soldier to say, the inactivity would drive a hermit to suicidal halter with sheer despair. But they had a fairly comfortable base. It was easy duty. Men sort of did what they do out there today. They drank, they swam, and they fished. There were a few problems. Uh, one officer, a Colonel Dandy of the 100th New York, would often get drunk and run through the picket lines. Uh, the men knew who it was, they didn't fire on him or anything, and then when Gadandi would sober up, he would arrest his men for not firing on him. Some of the Federal soldiers went down to the far end of the island, the, uh, the part of the island that was right across from the Confederate works. They would trade with the Confederates and sometimes actually swim back and forth across Lighthouse Inlet. Now, when the men on Morris and Folly Island avoided open combat, northern leaders in Washington were making new plans to attack Charleston. Charleston was no ordinary objective. It was the Confederacy's third largest city. It was a thriving commercial, uh, thriving commercial seaport and was the South's main blockade running port. Until the summer of 1863, the South's all-important uh, lifeline back to Europe flowed through Charleston. The city contained a government arsenal and numerous industrial plants that, fin that furnished finished goods to the South's military. It was home to a growing naval squadron of ironclad rams. And once taken, they could launch attacks from Charleston inland. They could go against Columbia. They could go after Augusta. 
Northern opinion spurred on by newspapers kept up a constant clamor for Charleston's capture. The city was considered by many to be symbolically more important than Richmond. It was the birthplace of secession and the heart of the rebellion. The Union military leaders, embarrassed by their inability to relieve Fort Sumter in 1861, were eager to redeem themselves. President Lincoln viewed the capture of Charleston as a needed moral, political, and symbolic victory for party and cause. As one naval officer wrote, I think the nation as well as the department has set its heart upon the fall of that city. I think justice demands it at the hands of fate. Now, since the naval assault had failed in early 1863, a new plan was worked out that called for a combined Army-Navy assault. The targets are going to be Morris Island and Fort Sumter. The operation called for the use of Folly Island as a jumping off point. What they were going to do, their camps, the Union camps were down here at the southern end of Folly Island. They were going to build fortifications on the northern end of Folly Island so they could launch an attack over to Lighthouse Inlet, uh, over and capture these batteries, sweep up Morris Island. They thought they could capture Morris Island in a day, overrun Wagner, uh, get up to Battery Gregg, capture Battery Gregg, establish breaching batteries, use these breaching batteries to destroy Fort Sumter. Once Fort Sumter was destroyed, they could occupy it or they could at least remove the obstructions and then the Navy, the ironclads, the monitors could come right into the harbor and capture the city. Seemed like a foolproof plan. And for the attack, they picked very special officers to come south. The Army commander was Brigadier General Quincy A. Gilmore, born in Lorain, Ohio. He was considered to be the best artillerist and engineer in the Union Army. Coming to Hilton Head in May of 1863, Gilmore is going to move his headquarters to Folly Island, begin preparing for the attack. He was soon joined by a new naval commander, Rear Admiral John Dahlgren. Like Gilmore, Dahlgren was considered to be the nation's top naval ordnance officer, being responsible for the Dahlgren gun. That's what he's leaning up against here in this photograph. He is uh, called by one of his officers to resemble, or said to resemble, more of a preacher than a naval officer. He was a very diligent officer. He cared very much for his men. He, he was personally brave, but he was very careful about taking chances, especially with his ships, the monitors. Now, while Dahlgren readied his vessels, Gilmore took his men from their comfortable works at the southern end of Folly Island and began building mass batteries at the island's northern end, directly across the Confederate works. Right in this area right here are these batteries he's building. In order to keep their presence hidden, the Union soldiers worked only at night in complete silence. They were not even allowed to curse the mosquitoes and sand fleas. By early June 1863, the emplacements were finished and Gilmore prepared for the assault. Now, for the attack, he brought together four brigades of infantry and a formidable array of artillery. In all, he had some 11,000 infantrymen, 350 artillerymen, about 400 engineers, and 50 pieces of artillery. His army also is going to contain something, at least up to this point, unique to Civil War armies, African-American regiments. In all, there were three black regiments among the Union forces, including the war's first black regiment, the 1st South Carolina. Elements of this regiment had been recruited from slaves at Port Royal as early as April 1862. And on January 1st, 1863, the regiment under Colonel Thomas W. Higginson was mustered into service and was immediately set into action along the southeast coast. Another regiment was the 2nd South Carolina under Colonel James Montgomery, a one-time Kansas partisan who had served in Kansas with John Brown. Montgomery's regiment had come from slaves freed by the raids of the 1st South Carolina. 
Assisting and working with Montgomery in securing recruits was Harriet Tubman, who had worked in a bakery and operated a spy ring in Beaufort, South Carolina. The 3rd African-American Regiment was the 54th Massachusetts, a unit formed outside of Boston, primarily of Northern blacks. Its commander was the 25-year-old Robert Gould Shaw. An experienced soldier, Shaw was leading a regiment that had been specifically raised by Northern politicians, abolitionists, and black leaders to prove that black men could and would fight. Opposing the Union troops were about 7,000 Confederates scattered around the Charleston area, all from South Carolina. Another four to 6,000 men were ready to be shipped to Charleston by train from Georgia, North Carolina, and other points in South Carolina. The Confederates knew that the Northerners were planning an assault, but they were not quite sure where it was going to come. They suspected Morris Island, but James Island was always considered to be the key to, to taking Charleston, so they kept most of their men on James Island. And Gilmore tried to keep the Southerners guessing. He's going to plan a couple of diversions. He's going to send Higginson's regiment, the 1st South Carolina, into the Edistal River. They're going to try to break the railroad up at Jacksonboro. Uh, Alfred Terry is going to take his division and land it on James Island, try to freeze the Confederates in that area, while General Strong is going to lead the attack from Folly Island over to Morris Island. Uh, the one diversion, Higginson's diversion, is not going to work very well. The men are going to be stopped by obstructions in the river. It's going to fizzle out. But Terry will get his men ashore on James Island. Uh, there'll be a little sharp battle on James Island on July 16th. Uh, but all they were trying to do is hold the Confederates in position. And once this seemed to be accomplished, Terry's men will be withdrawn and join up with Strong's uh, forces that are already on Morris Island. The main attack is directed against Morris Island. And shortly after midnight on the morning of July 10th, some 2,500 men under Brigadier General George Strong were placed in boats in the Folly River and rowed the Lighthouse Inlet where they awaited the bombardment. At dawn, the Union batteries were unmasked and opened fire. A short time later, Dahlgren led a squadron of monitors into action, adding their massive shells to the bombardment. Immediately, the Confederate artillerymen and infantrymen will go into their works. The artillerymen will get into these detached batteries here. The uh, infantrymen will go down and take a position in these trench lines uh, right here of what was called Oyster Point. They could see Strong's men in the barges in the river, and they could see them coming forward. begin lobbing shells toward the advancing northern boats. And the guys in the boats were a little anxious about this. As one soldier remarked, he did not mind being killed or drowned. It was the possibility of both that bothered him. <laughs> As he was wedged in so tight, he could neither pray, fight, nor swear. But the Federals are going to push on through the Confederate fire and they're going to land on Morris Island. Strong was in the lead. He's anxious to join the fray. He's going to leap from his boat before it lands and he's going to disappear under the water. Only his hat was floating on the waves. He soon resurfaced, reached shore, stripped off his waterlogged boots, and began directing the attack. Outgunned and outflanked, the Confederates were forced to retreat, fleeing two miles down the beach to Battery Wagner. The Northerners are going to follow, but a flurry of grape and canister from Wagner will stop them. And Gilmore called off the attack. It been a very hot day, temperatures close to 100 degrees. Gilmore knew his men were exhausted. He thought, well, the next day we'll be able to easily overrun Battery Wagner. But Wagner is much different from the little batteries they had already taken. Wagner is a very strong fortification. It has a number of artillery pieces that sweep the front. And again, right about here is a big marsh 
cuts in right about like this. So there's only about 25 yards right here that you can actually come at Wagner from the land side. All that's covered by all these artillery pieces. There's a huge bomb proof inside Wagner. There's some very large seacoast guns that can fire and duel with the monitors. It's a very formidable fortification. The next morning, July 11th, before dawn, General Strong is going to form his brigade about 500 yards from Wagner. Strong's brigade numbered 1,200 men. They expected an easy victory. However, inside Wagner were some 1,800 men. With no artillery bombardment, the Federals charged. Only one regiment managed to reach Wagner's molten wall. The rest were turned back by the intense fire from the battery's garrison. In a very short time, the Federals retreated. They lost over 300 men, one-fourth of their total strength. The Confederates lost 12. General Strong was the first to greet the survivors. With tears in his eyes, he kept repeating, my fault, my fault. The repulse had been a rude shock to the Northerners. Realizing that more preparation was needed, Gilmore began constructing breaching batteries to soften up Wagner for the next attack. He brought his guns over from Folly Island. He put them in these batteries right in here so they could then start a fire. Had about 40 guns in all. This is actually one of the batteries uh, that will fire on Wagner at this time. In the meantime, the Confederates gave Wagner a new garrison, some more artillery pieces, and a new commander, Brigadier General William Booth Tolliver. Confederate reaction to the Union lodgment on Morris Island was not one of despair, but of dedication to the long struggle ahead. Charleston newspapers called for an immediate counterattack and referred to the assault in historical and biblical terms. The Yankees were viewed as Vandals and Philistines. References were made to the Persian attack on Athens, with Gilmore being seen as a new Xerxes. The Daily Courier declared that should Charleston fall, life will no longer be worth living. President Davis viewed the landing as a serious act. He realized the South could ill afford to lose Charleston. Besides its value as a port, the South had to retain the city as a symbolic symbol and as a rallying point. The Confederacy had already lost Vicksburg, and reports from Gettysburg confirmed another devastating loss. If Charleston fell, the South would have a third major defeat, which would greatly affect the nation's ability and will to fight. For the well-being of the South, Charleston had to be held. On the morning of July 18th, Gilmore's bombardment will begin. The land batteries were joined by the fleet, and for hours, the Union guns pounded Wagner with over 9,000 shells. At its height, there were 27 shells per minute coming into Wagner. But the majority of Wagner's garrison was safely tucked away inside the battery's bombproofs, and the battery's guns were covered with sandbags. The work will be badly misshapen, but in reality, there's going to be very little damage. Now, there was some men stationed outside the bomb proof. These were the locally raised Charleston Battalion. Men from this unit were constantly dodging death as these shells exploded throughout the battery. To give a steadying influence, uh, Major David Ramsey of the battalion sat in a chair behind uh, Wagner's uh, parapet, calmly reading a newspaper while all these shells were exploding around him. Ramsey seemed oblivious to the passing shells. When necessary, he would get up to help carry wounded into the bomb proof but always he returned to his seat in his reading. Still, Gilmore and the majority of his troops thought that Wagner was being ripped apart, as one northerner described the scene as being one of the grandest and most fearful storms ever rained upon a battery on this continent. The air was filled with a bursting storm of iron, whose solid masses and fragments buried themselves in nearly every foot of the devoted fort. Toward evening, Gilmore will draw up a division of 9,000 men for the attack. He was very confident only about one-third of this force would be necessary. 
One federal commander thought there were only 300 men inside Wagner and felt the attack would be quick and easy. In reality, less than 30 men had been injured, leaving over 1,600 to resist a Union attack. The commander of the division was Major General Truman Seymour, who had been part of Sumter's garrison in April of 1861. The lead brigade was again led by the aggressive uh, Brigadier General George Strong. Commander of the regiment that was to spearhead the attack was Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. At the start of the campaign, Shaw had become friends with Strong, and he requested that should the opportunity arise, that his regiment be given the chance to prove itself. And now his request was being honored. The 54th would lead the attack into Wagner. Though he wanted the assignment, Shaw had had a premonition that he was not going to live out this battle. Gilmore and many of his officers believed, though, that the fort was reduced and helpless, and its garrison spirit broken. Gilmore expected an easy victory. Seymour and Strong thought, well, we might have some problems, but it shouldn't be too much. But Colonel Haldeman S. Putnam, commander of the 2nd Brigade, did not agree. Putnam was a West Point graduate, former engineer, thought the Union troops were going into Wagner like a flock of sheep. But his opinion was overruled. Before the attack, Putnam commented bitterly that Seymour is a devil of a fellow for Dash. At dusk, Seymour will ready his division, and the 54th Massachusetts took the lead position. 54th was the strongest regiment in the Union force. Uh, the other regiments had very large sick rolls, which reduced their strength from anywhere from 90 to 150 men. And the 1st Brigade, only the 54th, with its 650 men, was large enough to be drawn up in two lines, two men deep, with one wing of five companies in advance, one wing, five companies in the rear. The following regiments were formed in either a column of companies or in line. For the attack, Shaw was going to lead the front, the, the lead wing, while his second in command would uh, be in command of the second wing. Rifles were loaded, but they were not capped. The assault was to be a simple bayonet rush. No plans of the battery had been given to the officers, nor were they supplied with any tools to cut away obstructions. There were no artillerymen to assist in working any captured artillery, and no engineers to lead the way. The bayonet was all. The division waited in the growing darkness, then the law was finally broken when General Strong appeared in their front, mounted on a large gray horse. The men of the 54th had laid down in the sand while the bombardment was going on, and they stayed in this position as Strong addressed them. In a quick, short talk, Strong told the African-American soldiers that he, too, was a Massachusetts man and knew that they would uphold the state's honor. He then asked if there was anyone who thought they would be unable to sleep in the fort that night. A chorus of no's answered his question. He then called on the color bearer to come forward. This day, the uh, flag was carried by a fellow by the name of John Wall from Oberlin, Ohio. Strong asked who would pick up the flag if the color bearer should fall. And a lot of guys shouted out that they would. Then Shaw, who had stood nearby, stepped forward, took the cigar out of his mouth, and said, I will, to which the regiment responded with cheers. Finally, Strong ordered the men to keep their files and ranks, and as one veteran recalled, to go in and bayonet every mother's son of them. At 7.45, the order was given to advance. Shaw walked to the front and center of the 54th, called it to attention. He gave his final orders. Move in quick time until with 100 yards of the fort, then double quick and charge. He paused, then gave the order forward, and the men moved out into the darkness. This is how not only the 54th, but everyone had to advance forward. Again, you can see this defile coming down here. They actually had forced some of the guys out into the ocean as they came down to attack. As you round this, this is where Wagner then could fire upon you. 
They're going to come forward, they're going to hit the defile, they'll come through the defile, and just then, Tolliver will order his garrison to open fire. An observer watching from the single tower on Folly Island saw the work become a continuous streak of red. Stunned and momentarily disorganized, the 54th will continue on toward the center of the battery. Great numbers of men fell before they reached the ditch. The color bearer went down and the national standard was received by Sergeant William Carney. Shaw led the remaining soldiers down into the moat through one foot of water and up to the crest of the parapet. For a moment, the men struggled to gain the gun chambers with Colonel Shaw calling his men to go forward. Then bullets ripped into his body and he collapsed into the wall. So far, the 54th had used their bayonets. Now, having been forced back into the ditch, the remaining officers opened with their revolvers and the men capped their muskets. The soldiers clung to the exterior slope, attempting to find vantage points to fire on the Confederates. Some of the Confederates, seemingly outraged by the presence of the blacks, jumped onto the rampart to come to grips with the enemy. By now, Sergeant Kearney reached Wagner and joined with the regiment survivors as they tried to scale the wall, but soon they were forced back onto the embankment, where Kearney planted the colors and, though wounded, kept up the fight. The 54th clung to the parapet, awaiting help, but seemingly none came and eventually orders were passed by the remaining officers for a retreat. And though the men broke and ran from uh, Wagner's walls, the regiment survivors reformed and remained on the field. They will be the only regiment to, to actually reform this night. Among the last to reach the position is going to be Sergeant Kearney. Though wounded four times, he still retained the flag. For his actions, he became the first African-American to win the Medal of Honor. The 54th had not hit Wagner alone. They just didn't notice in the darkness and all the things that are going on that the following regiments actually came into the seaward salient. Uh, the 54th came up, hit the center of the fort. Uh, the next two regiments came into the seaward salient. And here, a uh, regiment of North Carolinians had not taken their position. They had actually been shell-shocked uh, by the bombardment and refused to come out of the bomb-proof. Uh, Union soldiers from the 6th Connecticut and 48th New York charged into Wagner. They actually got into the salient, but after a fierce struggle, they were forced back. Behind them came three more regiments, led in person by General Strong against Wagner's center, where the 54th had hit. But like the black soldiers before them, the rest of the brigade was forced back after Strong was mortally wounded. Then a pause in the battle occurred before the 2nd Brigade came forward. And no one really knows why the 2nd Brigade hesitated. Seymour, as soon as he saw guys from the 1st Brigade get inside the fort, had ordered Putnam forward. But Putnam hesitated, and Seymour had to repeat the order. And we seem to think that Putnam had been listening to Gilmore and thought when Gilmore said, well, only really one brigade or one-third of our force is going to be needed, Putnam took this as an order and held his men back until Seymour's second command got to him. Then he's going to lead his men toward the seaward salient. When it did advance, they're going to drive into the Wagner Seaward Salient where the Federals over, uh, overran this area in a massive charge. Immediately, Tolliver moved to seal off the breakthrough. The shell-shocked North Carolina Regiment emerged from the bomb-proof and was used in a counterattack. The fighting was confused on both sides. The Southerners fired into their own men, killing Captain Ramsey, the man who had survived the bombardment while reading the newspaper. The Federals, though, could not take advantage of their situation. Packed in tight, officers could not keep their men organized. Putnam tried to lead an attack into Wagner, but was killed while urging his men forward. Finally, the men in the salient, realizing that they were in danger of being trapped, retreated. Those who remained were cut off when Confederate reinforcements arrived on the field. In the end, the Northerners will wreck two brigades on Wagner before Seymour went down with a severe wound. 
Gilmore wisely called off the attack before it became his army's death site. To give you an idea of how destructive the battle was, of the 5,000 Federals who went into action, over 1,500 were lost. The 54th is going to lose 40% of its men, 272 out of the 650 that went in the battle. The 6th Connecticut suffered 25% casualties. The 48th New York lost 50% of its men and returned with only two of its 16 officers. The 7th New Hampshire lost 18 officers, the most of any regiment in the war for a single battle. The Union Division commander was wounded, both brigade commanders were killed, and every regimental commander except one was killed or wounded. The next morning, the battlefield was turned over to the doctors and nurses, among them being Clara Barton, who would never forget her experiences on this little sandy island, and 20 years later would often refer to Wagner in her anti-war speeches. Now, after the battle, both sides agreed to a truce uh, for the care of the wounded and to bury the dead. Confederate officers who had been killed in Wagner will be taken back, they'll be buried in Charleston or sent back to their families. Confederate enlisted men who were killed at Wagner, they were buried in a mass grave behind Wagner. The majority of the Federals were buried in mass graves in front of Wagner. This included Shaw and Putnam. Colonel Shaw was purposely buried with about 20 of his soldiers. And though Putnam's body was eventually returned, Shaw's was never asked for nor returned. A few days later, an official prisoner exchange uh, took place on ships off Morris Island. At this time, Northern officers tried to learn the fates of captured black soldiers, but the Confederates refused to discuss the matter. And it was a sensitive issue, as when the North began outfitting its black units, the South responded with something known as General Order No. 60, which stated that any former slaves captured would be returned to servitude, and any freedmen or whites taken would be turned over to the state where captured for trial for inciting a slave revolt. And this was usually the death penalty. Until Battery Wagner, this test was un, was, uh, this uh, act was untested. Now the South had men to prosecute, and the North watched carefully in case retaliation against Confederate soldiers became necessary. Lincoln decreed that for every African-American soldier sent into slavery, a Confederate soldier would be put at hard labor, and for every Northern soldier executed, a Southern soldier would also be shot. Indeed, Gilmore had retained certain uh, Confederates, including the son of the mayor of Charleston, just in case such retaliation would be needed. Now, placed in the Charleston jail will be 73 black prisoners from the 54th Massachusetts. At first, General Beauregard wanted to avoid the issue, but soon the governor of South Carolina, a fire eater by the name of Millage Bottom, demanded that the prisoners be turned over to the state. And Beauregard, under orders from the Confederate Secretary of War, James Seddon, turned jurisdiction of the prisoners to the state officials. The black soldiers had already thought that their fate had been decided because they're going to build a gallows in the courtyard of the jail. Four of the prisoners were found to be former slaves, and they were placed on trial before the Charleston Police Court. They were defended by Nelson Mitchell, a prominent Charleston attorney, while the prosecutor was Isaac Hayne, the state attorney general. The trial opened on September 8, 1863. Mitchell argued that though the men had been born slaves, they were now legitimate soldiers of the United States, protected by the rules of war. As such, state laws did not apply to the prisoners. After a three-day trial, the court agreed with Mitchell and ruled that it had no jurisdiction. The men were recommitted to the jail and returned to the Confederate authorities. Though problems over prisoner exchange will remain, the results of the legal proceedings ended the question that Secretary of War Seddon had said was fraught with present difficulty and danger. There were no executions, 
nor were there any placement of men at hard labor. And the South, though grudgingly, accepted the North's use of black troops. While the fate of the black prisoners were being decided in Charleston, the Federals on Morris Island prepared to carry on. After the second repulse at Wagner, Gilmore decided to open siege operations against the Confederate battery. In a short time, the Northerners established parallels and began digging these zigzag trenches. Working mostly at night, fatigue parties made up of both black and white soldiers constructed a trench line through the shifting sand. As they neared Wagner, they began, they began using something known as a sap roller. This is this thing here. About one ton, it's a woven basket of saplings. It's about one ton, and you fill it with sand, you push it in front of you, you begin throwing up sand uh, to make this trench. These photographs, photographs and some of the other ones I'll be showing you, are actually Morris Island, but they're taken after the siege because nobody would be exposing themselves like this during the siege. It's a very slow, grueling, and dangerous process. By this method, it's going to take the Federals nearly two months to reach Battery Wagner. Now, while the siege lines were started, Gilmore denied access to Cummings Point, where he wanted to put his breaching batteries by the tenacious defenders inside Wagner, decided to alter his plan, and he began building breaching batteries in the middle of Morris Island to reduce Fort Sumter. Though he hadn't taken the entire island, Gilmore believed that his cannon were powerful enough to destroy Sumter from a distance of over two miles. Siege batteries were built, and they were given some of the heaviest ordnance used in the Civil War. Seacoast artillery, some weighing over 25,000 pounds, were placed in the batteries by dragging the giant guns and huge sling carts across the sandy island. It would take an entire regiment to pull one of these guns down the beach. War on Morris Island is becoming mechanized as the shovel and pick were replacing the musket. To support the Union batteries and siege work, a massive ordnance and supply installation was established on Morris Island near Lighthouse Inlet, which included foundries, lumber mills, a steam-powered crane, and even plants to convert salt water to fresh water. Work on the Federal Union lines was supervised by a number of uh, very good engineering officers. Some were West Point graduates, but most of them came from the first New York engineers, uh, like this fellow here, Colonel Edward W. Serrell, the regiment's English-born commander. The Confederates also had a number of excellent engineers, including Colonel David B. Harris, who often went out to Battery Wagner to assist with its defense. Also serving with the Confederates as Charleston was the Cuban-born Colonel Ambrosio Gonzalez, a Cuban revolutionary. Gonzalez had married into the prominent South Carolina Elliott family. He's the uh, Southern Department's uh, chief of ordnance. The Confederates realized it was only a matter of time before the federal siege lines finally would reach Wagner. But Wagner had to buy them time because what they're going to try to do is get a lot of the guns out of Sumter and reposition them over and around Fort Moultrie. But they knew it was just, again, a matter of time before the North is going to overrun Wagner, and they're even going to bring down the chief Confederate engineer, Major General Gilmer. Gilmer is going to correctly sum up the situation when he commented, as long as the contest is one of work and shooting at long range, no people can beat the infernal Yankees. But Wagner could not stop the destruction of Fort Sumter. By mid-August, the Union breaching batteries were finished. Gilmer called on the Navy for additional help. Dahlgren responded by having his wooden gunboats keep up a long-range bombardment of Wagner. His monitors were then to go in and assist on the firing of Fort Sumter. On August 17th, the bombardment of Sumter was opened. Firing is going to go on for a week. We're over a week. And in less than 10 days, Fort Sumter was destroyed as an artillery position. 
During the bombardment, shots came fast at Sumter. Timbers caved in and arches crumbled. Bricks were smashed into powder. The sandbags were blown apart. One by one, the remaining guns are going to be dismounted so that by the end of the bombardment, only one gun is still workable inside Sumter. Sumter's uh, destruction devastated its Beaufort-born commander, Colonel Alfred Rett, who played, very plaintively told a uh, fellow officers, they have ruined my beautiful fort. But Rett and his command had little time for melancholy. To survive, every effort had to be made to repair and renovate the fort. And what they're really going to end up doing is building a new Fort Sumter from the ruins of the old. It's going to be very difficult work. It's going to be exhausting work. But by taking all the debris that's just being shattered about the fort, they could build new parapets, stronger parapets, that wouldn't break apart when hit by enemy shells. Sumter is not abandoned. It will have its artillery and artillerymen uh, removed. And they'll bring in infantrymen to take over Fort Sumter, because Sumter is still very important because it's an anchor of, those, of the obstructions. A new commander is going to come out, Stephen Elliott, another Beaufort uh, native. And Elliott's going to be given some infantrymen to guard Fort Sumter. Because of the determined Confederate defense, both at Wagner and Sumter, the northern plan begins to unravel. OK, they've blown up Fort Sumter, but the obstructions are still there. They can't get men out to Fort Sumter because Confederates are still in Wagner and are between them and Fort Sumter. And until those obstructions are taken up, the monitors can't go into the harbor. So far, the Confederates are stalemating the Union attack. Dahlgren's not going to send in his monitors until these obstructions are removed. Because more than anything else, Dahlgren fears losing one of these monitors. And he's very much afraid that should a couple of these get into the hands of the Confederates, then there could be a great deal of difficulty. Gilmore is very frustrated by it all. And he's going to try a unique way to try to get at Charleston. At the beginning of the siege, the general had ordered a battery constructed in the marsh between Morris and James Island. Nicknamed the Marsh Battery, the work was designed to hold an artillery piece that would fire projectiles nearly 8,000 yards into Charleston. Gilmore never quite explains why he puts this Marsh Battery together, but Charleston was a legitimate target. It has fortifications within the city. It has arsenals. Uh, there's warships tied up at its wharfs. And so there's nothing really wrong with firing at Charleston. But we seem to think the reasons run a little deeper than this. Charleston is this sort of symbol of the rebellion. Charleston is a, the defenders of Charleston are frustrating Gilmore. And Gilmore seeing his men die and get sick on Morris Island. So there's a little bit of revenge in here as well. On August 21st, the Marsh Battery was ready. An eight-inch parrot called the Swamp Angel was mounted. And thanks to a compass reading taken on St. Michael's steeple in downtown Charleston, it was prepared to fire into the city. Gilmore then sends a very interesting message to General Beauregard, demanding the immediate evacuation of Morris Island and Fort Sumter, or he would fire on Charleston. Beauregard, sort of amazed at all this, says, well, why don't you just ask me to get out of Charleston? I mean, why just stop at Sumter and Morris Island? Of course, it's refused. And at 1.30 AM on August 22nd, the Swamp Angel fired its first shell into Charleston. And over the next three nights, 36 rounds were sent into the city. Reactions to the bombardment are going to be varied. At the Charleston Hotel, which is this building right here, uh, the very famous uh, English illustrator, uh, Frank Vizzatelli, is in here. Vizzatelli uh, is, is kind of upset with the people he's sharing the hotel with, because a lot of them are speculators. He calls them bloodsuckers down here to get money out of the Charlestonians. 
but he's in his room and he's about to fall asleep. He's reading a description of Waterloo. And then the first shell explodes in the city. Visitelli quickly moved into the hallway where he found the corridors filled with the terrified patrons who were rushing about in the scantiest costumes. As Visitelli described the scene, one perspiring individual of portly dimensions was trotting to and fro with one boot on and the other in his hand, and this was all the dress he could boast of. When another shell exploded, Visitelli gleefully commented that the entire crowd went down on their faces, every man of them, in tobacco juice, cigar ends, and clattering among the spittoons. Uh, Visitelli said if a shell would have hit the hotel, uh, you know, nobody of any importance would have been lost. It probably would have helped the Confederacy to get rid of these guys. <laughs> Visitelli is going to go down the street to a bar, and he's going to meet up with some Austrian and Prussian officers that are going to sit around and get drunk and make bets as to where the next shell is going to fall. The Austrian sees that Visitelli's pretty drunk, so he sort of uh, bets Visitelli. He says, well, I'll bet you a dollar the next one doesn't hit us. Visitelli takes him up on the bets. And, uh, <laughs> the Austrian won his dollar. <laughs> now, a little farther down the street at the battery, there's another guy who's there when these shells are coming in. This is Williams Middleton, an avowed Yankee uh, hater. Uh, Middleton in the house is, uh, I'm sorry, this is, this is actually the picture. Let's go back here a couple. This is actually, of that great description of what's going on at the Charleston Hotel, uh, this is what Visitelli draws of the, the uh, firing in there. No one was hurt by any of these shells coming in. But uh, down, the battery, down at the battery, Williams Middleton, again, this avowed Yankee hater, and this is his home, it's still there in Charleston today. Uh, he used to go out on the porches and watch what was going on in Morris Island, and the shells are starting to come in, and he's dropping off to sleep. When his neighbor comes over, to tell him that the, what was going on. And it wakes Middleton up, and Middleton goes downstairs, and as he wrote his wife, uh, that you know, my neighbor, you know, our neighbor came over to tell me that the Yanks were shelling the city. And then Middleton goes on to describe, to describe the scene to his wife, as if I didn't know it. Can you conceive of anything more absurd? I told him that I felt much obliged to him for taking so much trouble, but I thought that all we could do was let them shell and be damned. He then went on to assure his wife that everything was okay. Little or no damage has been done and not a soul hurt. As soon as they begin, our batteries all open on them and make it too hot for them to continue their deviling, which is intended, I expect, for effect in the Yankee news market. Middleton does promise farther up the city, up the peninsula, but he never does it. And indeed, little was accomplished, and on the 36th round, the Swamp Angel will explode. The firing, again, no great military effect. This is the, batter, the gun right here. You can see where it's throwing up on the parapet. Uh, it had no great effect on the campaign whatsoever, but it did show how really upset and frustrated the, the northerners were about this. And Gilmore is getting more and more upset. He's starting to continually rotate at the island's garrison. Uh, the infantry was replaced about every third day. The artillerymen would stay a little longer. Command was rotated about every five days. And throughout the siege, the Confederates used only their most reliable troops and best commanders on Morris Island. Many of them were South Carolinians. The Confederate high command counted on high morale to counteract the difficult circumstances. And typical of the Confederate spirit at Wagner was Colonel Lawrence Kitt's reply on, after he got a telegram from Beauregard saying, you know, are things okay, can you hold on? And Kitt replied back to Beauregard that, send some more limes, rum, and sugar, a little water, we'll hold for another day. The Federals, on the other hand, you might say, were stuck on Morris Island for the duration, and it was not pleasant duty. 
The only relaxation available to the men was surf bathing. Daily, the beach of Morris Island would be crowded with off-duty soldiers. Many camps were located within 100 yards of the beach, so the men could get into the water at night and at the uh, morning, and they could catch a breeze. But even the ocean uh, could not make the place livable. These are actual photographs of the camps on Morris Island. The camps were uncomfortable and crowded. Tents were useless on the loose sand, so they had to build these platforms and stretch canvas over them. Only with experience could you sleep or relax. During July and August, temperatures soared over 100 degrees, and the slightest breeze, though comforting, would stir up the sand, which the soldiers called the Carolina snowstorm. The sand affected everything, the men's clothing, food, and equipment. Fleas were a nuisance, and the island was infested with rats. On occasion, large crabs would crawl inside the men's blankets, awakening them rudely. And one day, much to everyone's misery, a plague of locusts actually struck Morris Island. As a soldier of the 85th Pennsylvania wrote, I think this is the meanest place that I was ever in. Army hospitals tended to the soldiers as well as the Sanitary Commission. Another relief organization that helped out was headed up by Clara Barton. She worked out of her tent with only a black woman as an assistant. She was constantly passing out food, writing letters, and assisting the Army surgeons. Though urged by many to leave Morris Island, she remained. Uh, since, she thought she, since she had no ties to anyone else, she thought her loss would mean nothing to anyone. A letter of Clara Barton written in late August gives a fitting description of the place. She wrote that she ate what the soldiers called salt junk, old beef of such hardness and saltiness as you never dreamed of, lean bacon and hard crackers, both buggy and wormy. There was not a potato or other cookery vegetable on that island for weeks. I sent General Terry one day on hearing that he was sick, a dish of stewed dried peas and half a loaf of soft bread, which had been sent me from Hilton Head. And he was so grateful that he came over as soon as he could walk about to thank me for them. General Gilmore sent his waiter to me with a cracked teacup to know if I could let him have a little white sugar. He was dangerously ill and could take no nourishment if he had it. Uh, Clara Barton, like Gilmore, Dahlgren, and Terry, and thousands of men became very ill, and she actually had to go back to Hilton Head for a few days during the siege, but she'll come back before it, it ends. The monotony of the routine made the men on Morris Island dull and spiritless. As the siege dragged on with no apparent end in sight, the soldiers began to go about their duties listlessly. As their mental and physical conditions uh, weakened, so did the resistance to disease. Malaria and fever swept the camps. It was not uncommon for half a regiment to report in sick. By August, 20% of the Federal Army was on the sick rolls. Such sickness caused the North's chief medical inspector to report, that unless you take Wagner soon, you might as well attack it again, because we're going to lose more men as the siege goes on. Now, throughout the campaign, not only is it wearing out the Army, but it's wearing out the Navy as well. Dahlgren's very good at always sending his ships into action whenever called upon. Before the campaign is over, they're going to fire over 8,000 rounds into the Confederate works, a lot of these weighing over 400 pounds. The most effective vessel was the New Ironsides, kind of an ugly ship here, but this vessel could fire 2,500 pounds of metal. It could take on all of the Confederate works on Sullivan's Island by itself and silence them. It's going to receive over 1,000 hits during the campaign and never be taken out of action. The monitors also turned in good service throughout the campaign, but they're very difficult vessels to serve in. Only the sailors in the turret or the pilot house had the luxury of seeing sunlight or breathing fresh air. Those below deck served in an environment that was as dark as the blackest night, having only lanterns for light. 
They also had no idea what was happening outside. Uh, they could hear hits, the sort of dull thuds. Misses sounded like screaming demons as they went overhead. When in action, the men below deck would strip off everything except pants and shoes as they passed powder and shot from the magazine to the turret. They had ventilators that were supposed to carry all the smoke away from the ship, but in reality, it carried it back inside, uh, making one guy said, you know, the air is so thick inside these vessels after a few hours, you can cut it. Besides repairs, Dahlgren worried over the physical condition and of his men. They decided they were deteriorating. It'd go up to 140 degrees in the engine room inside these monitors. Crews were close to suffocation, and at any chance they could, they'd get out of these vessels, come above decks. Uh, one engineer came out, and he wasn't in his full proper uniform, and the officer of the deck reprimanded him for it. And speaking for all the guys down inside that iron hall, the engineer replied, they did not wear uniforms in hell. The sailors also suffered a lot of other problems. They began developing scurvy, and Dahlgren's getting quite worried. He's got to ask for more uh, men, for sailors to be sent to him. And he does begin recruiting a lot of the contrabands from the Port Royal area. Now, the United States Navy had been integrated since the 1790s, and there were free men serving on board the vessels, but they also began to get picking up these different contrabands to serve on board the ships. It was not uncommon for some of the vessels to have three-fourths of their crew to be made up of black sailors off Charleston. Dahlgren's worried, though. His men are wearing out. His vessels are wearing out. He doesn't know if he can actually launch his final attack into Charleston. And the strain is getting very evident. But still, these monitors are good, effective vessels. They can take these 400-pound cannonballs and skip them across the water. Actually, they can go straight up in the air and then land down inside the Confederate uh, batteries. Wagner, there was no place inside Wagner uh, that was safe. On one occasion, Wagner's chief engineer, the Virginia-born Captain J. Morris Wampler, uh, thought he was in a sheltered area, and he sat down to write his wife and family. He managed to get on the letter, my dear wife and child, when a projectile bounded over the wall and instantly killed him. In another action against enemy ironclads, Captain Robert Pringle continued to operate his lone gun. Very uneven fight against these monitors. But as the monitors were skipping shells toward him, uh, one of these skips actually hit a school of mullet and flung a fish into the battery. Pringle picked it up, remarked that the enemy had just provided his supper. However, the brave captain who had survived earlier duels with the monitors is going to get struck down in the next volley, and he's not going to be able to eat his supper. While their soldiers and sailors were suffering from the strain of battle, both Dahlgren and Gilmore are getting worn out and beginning to feud with each other, each doubting the other's resolution. Gilmore believed that his job was done and waited for Dahlgren to move. Dahlgren would not move until an opening in the obstructions had been made. By the end of the campaign, the two are really barely communicating with each other. Still, the work is going to go on. Morris Island is really sort of going to become a World War I battlefield in many ways. You're going to have landmines, wire obstructions, searchlights. Sharpshooters played an important role. The Confederates outfitted a special detachment with British-made Whitworth rifles that could hit a man at a 1,400 yards. They were celebrities with their fellow soldiers. You could always recognize them because the recoil of this thing gave you a black eye. Also, they had Requa batteries, the Berlinghurst Requa batteries. It's the row of 24 barrels here. Had one big cartridge that would fire this thing. Said it fired a wave of bullets at the enemy. A lot of these were used throughout the Union siege lines. The largest gun used in combat by the Army in the war was placed on Morris Island, a 10-inch rifled Parrot gun 
weighing 26,000 pounds that could fire a 300-pound shot. This cannon tore great holes into Sumter. The Parrot shells traveled to two and a half miles to Sumter in 18 seconds, crushing masonry and crumbling casemates. One officer in Folly Island claimed that the entire Sea Island would vibrate every time this thing was fired. It's also very durable. During the siege, a shell exploded in its chamber, blowing off 18 inches of the barrel. Federals merely just filed down the rough edges, kept on firing. Shortened barrel didn't affect the gun at all. As one wag commented, the American Eagle is a fine bird, but he cannot beat the 10-inch parrot. <laughs> Under the cover of their artillery and the Requa batteries, the Northerners pushed their trenches toward Wagner. As they neared the battery, they began to run into a number of landmines, termed torpedoes. And this is one right here that they dug up. Just a big wooden canister with, uh, filled with powder, had a firing uh, detonation with a board over top of it, so if you stepped on the board or pushed down on the board, it would set off the powder inside the canister. These devices would often explode on the men digging the trenches. And one resulted in a very unfortunate incident. One black soldier, while working, hit a mine, was blown up out of the trenches in front of Wagner and actually landed on the mechanism of another mine and had a lot of his clothes was ripped off and everything. The next day, a reporter from Harper's Weekly saw this, and he drew this sketch claiming that the rebels were tying Union soldiers to these triggers to try as sort of booby traps. It wasn't true, but it did cause a great deal of uh, consternation throughout the North. Such incidents as this, and the fact that the reporters were very critical of Gilmore and his campaign, caused a lot of problems, and Gilmore is eventually going to receive permission to arrest all the reporters and send them back to Hilton Head. By early September, though, the Union siege lines had nearly reached Wagner's moat, and Gilmore planned his final assault. It's going to be a 30-hour bombardment, and he's going to then set up a new attack against Wagner, very detailed attack. It's not going to be like the July 18th guys. are going to have plans of the fort. There's going to be engineers and artillerymen involved. But you can see how this trench line just weaved its way up along the sand, and they were already up to the defile now, cutting their way through that. On September 5th, the bombardment opened, and it was so subdued Battery Wagner's garrison that the Federal sappers were able to push their trenches another 150 yards with no interference. Because of the excellent work of his artillerymen and fatigue parties, Gilmore continued the bombardment so the men could continue to dig this uh, trench forward. The sappers worked on, and as they neared Wagner's uh, moat, it got kind of nasty as they got down to this area right here because they began digging through those mass graves of their comrades. But by now, the only dangers of the men in the trenches were the short-falling or misdirected Union shells, and to protect themselves, they kept a large American flag flying at the head of the sap as they pushed forward. The bombardment was causing havoc in Wagner. The Confederates tried to fight back, but it was, the fire was just too heavy for them to expose themselves. The majority of the garrison was forced to find shelter either outside the fort or inside the bombproofs. And in the bombproofs, the, uh, they'd be bringing in the wounded because the hospital was in the bombproof as well. And these guys would have to sit there and watch their comrades having their arms and legs cut off. Very terrible experience. And one Confederate soldier wrote his fiance, it would take a much better pen than my own to give you the faintest idea of the picture. Imagine anything that is truly terrible and you will perhaps approach the idea. In the midst of the artillery fire, Colonel Harris is going to come out from Charleston to look at Wagner, and after his inspection, he'll report to Beauregard that Wagner could no longer be held. Orders were sent to Wagner's commander, Colonel Kitt, to evacuate. 
and during the evening of September 6, in the midst of the bombardment, while northern assault forces were gathering just uh, yards away, Kit will pull his men out of Wagner and off Morris Island. At dawn on September 7th, the evacuated Confederates could see that their enemies had occupied Wagner. As Colonel Harris wrote, the next morning to our chagrin could be observed a flag of a Massachusetts regiment planted on the ramparts of the glorious Battery Wagner. Even so, the Southerners had much to be proud of. Only three boats, about 50 men, were captured. They had pulled off one of the largest evacuations of the war. About 1,000 men got away, and the Northerners had no idea what was going on. Though the Federals were disappointed they had not taken uh, the garrison, uh, they didn't mind not having to attack Wagner one more time, and they got to inspect the fort, and these were men from the 54th Massachusetts standing outside the uh, main bomb-proof in Wagner. Upon the fall of Morris Island, the Union commanders made one last effort to finish their plan. They're going to plan attacks against Fort Sumter, amphibious landings. But by now, Gilmore and Dahlgren were barely communicating. Uh, neither are going to show any cooperation with the other. The only thing they're going to work out is the use of a common password, Detroit. This is what they were going to do. The Army was going to send their boat infantry out of the marsh to try to land on uh, Sumter. The Navy was going to launch ships from a uh, mother vessel, a tugboat, and send in launches from this side. Uh, Gilmore ordered his Army commanders, as the Navy lands first, we don't want to get confused with them, pull off. And indeed, the Navy did land first. The Army never did get into action. Of the 400 Marines and sailors who uh, got onto Fort Sumter, over 100 are going to be captured. As Major Elliott, Sumter's commander, wrote his sister, my dear child, 12 first-rate officers and about 115 or 20 splendid men begged by 70, which was the whole force actively engaged. Not the least satisfactory part of it is that not one of my men was touched. Actually, Elliott was slightly wounded. After the attack, the Federals ceased all active operations, and for the moment, the great guns were silent. Battery Wagner was rebuilt into a fort. Its guns were trained on James Island and against Fort Sumter. And you might say, while the fighting between the Southerners and the Northerners sort of slowed down, the feud between Gilmore and Dahlgren continued. Gilmore claimed that he had carried out his part of the assignment and demanded the Navy go in and take Charleston. Dahlgren, on the other hand, responded that he couldn't go in until the obstructions were removed. Not only had a stalemate resulted between the Confederates and the Federals, but also between the leaders of the Federal Army and Navy. The immediate results of the campaign, well, it did stifle blockade running. Uh, this, the runners shifted up to Wilmington instead of risk the, the run into Charleston at this time. Other results, well, Fort Sumter had been reduced to rubble, but not taken. The majority of Sumter's guns had been removed, taken over around Fort Moultrie. They built up this area on Sullivan's Island. They improved the obstructions. And they so well fortified the harbor that the Navy Department told Dahlgren, uh, don't even think about trying to go in anymore. And behind their new forts, the Confederates continued their determined defense. One legacy that both sides shared were the names of their new forts and batteries. They're going to name their forts and works after fallen comrades. The Federals were renamed Battery Wagner Fort Strong. Other works will be named for General Putman and Colonel Shaw. The South named their batteries for Chevis, Ramsey, Simpkins, Gary, Tatum, Marion, Wampler, Pringle, B, and others. These memorials are going to get close to home because a lot of them are South Carolinians, and some of them are Charlestonians, like Lieutenant B here. For the rest of the war, there's never going to again be a major attack against Charleston. 
Yeah, there'll be some sharp engagements on James and John's islands in 1864 and 65, but Charleston will never really be threatened. The North did continue its bombardment. They will uh, put the new, oh well, they'll be put some new guns uh, into uh, the Swamp Angel Battery, but life for the soldiers on Morris Island improved as the majority of the men were sent away in cool weather, brought needed relief. They even brought in some bands for entertainment. For the rest of the war, Morris Island was used as a post from which bombardments and raids were launched, but no great operations undertaken. In February 1865, while General William Tecumseh Sherman's army marched well inland of the city, cutting off its communications, the Confederates will evacuate Charleston. And it will be the men from Morris Island who will lead the rush to the harbor forts and city. They're going to be the first to Sumter and will raise the American flag over Sumter. And you might say they finally completed that mission they started back in the summer of 1863. After the war, Boris Island was abandoned by the military. Uh, they will rebuild the lighthouse in 1876. But the main sh ship channel will be moved shortly after this. It'll be run so it comes straight into the harbor by the use of man-made riprap's. Interestingly enough, General Gilmore was the guy in charge of these riprap's. And when this occurred, Morris Island began to erode. You can still visit Morris Island today. There are a few dangers in visiting Morris Island, but not quite the same as what the soldiers had. However, the site of Battery Wagner, the siege lines are no more. Uh, this is the uh, shoreline in 1863, the dotted line. This is the shoreline today. This is where Wagner would be located. All your sieges and batteries are all through there. And even the lighthouse, which once was on high ground, now stands alone in the ocean. So we best remember Morris Island, the campaign, the battles fought out there by the writings and reminiscences of the participants. And I think I can sum up the siege by the comments of two. One was a Confederate cavalryman who remarked, I have heard the preachers talk about hell, a great big hole full of fire and brimstone, where a bad fellow was dropped in. And I will allow, it used to worry me at times. But gentlemen, hell can't be any worse than Battery Wagner. I have got out of that, and the other place ain't going to worry me anymore. Clara Barton put it a little differently. She wrote, we have captured one fort, Greg, and one charnel house, Wagner, and we have built one cemetery, Morris Island. The thousand little sand hills and the pale moonlight are a thousand headstones and the restless ocean waves that roll and break up on the whitened beach sing an eternal requiem to the toil-worn, gallant dead who sleep beside. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Steve, for a very interesting and stimulating uh, presentation. And uh, I'm sure all of us appreciated your efforts tonight. And as a token of our appreciation, uh, we have this uh, pewter tankard for you with the inscription presented to Dr. Stephen R. Wise for gallant service, Civil War Roundtable Chicago, September 20th, 1996. So thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> um, and now Steve is, uh, is willing to uh, uh, entertain some questions. Does anybody have any questions for Steve? Yes. That was owned by Williams Middleton. That was his plantation. 
writer for the New York Times, Drew Middleton. Was he related to that family? Not that I know of. He was a military writer mm -hmm. about World War II. Right. I don't know that. Uh, Middleton's uh, actually hung on to the plantation, though it was burned uh, toward the end of the war. It's a very beautiful garden now. Any other questions? Yes, way in the back. Uh, after Fort Buster was reduced in the hands of the Mount, there was still a reaction to the blockade. The Gap was moved next to Fort Moultrie. What they did was they anchored it at Sumter and shifted the Gap over to Fort Moultrie. And I guess the best way to answer that is Dahlgren was no Farragut. <laughs> and the, a few months, about six months, a few months after the attack, uh, Gideon Wells actually wrote Dahlgren and said, it's not worth us losing monitors to try to capture Charleston. So that gave Dahlgren the out that he was kind of hoping for, because he was considering going in. He really didn't want to. Uh, but it, it Wells kind of bailed him out. But if somebody like Farragut was there, yeah, you could have gone in right under the guns and gone right into the harbor. It would have been an interesting fight. I think they probably would have made it and would have done it. Yes? Uh, no, uh, they actually, Gilmore just uh, basically uh, detached Strong, and I don't know why he kept picking on Strong's brigade, because it was always kind of worn out from the day before, but no, Gilmore believed there was only a handful of guys inside Wagner, we'll just overrun it real quick in the morning, move on and take the rest of the island. Uh, Strong really didn't have anything to do with the decision other than he was given the task of leading the assault. And it, w it was a very rude shock that they couldn't take it on the 11th. And then that caused the preparation, the bigger preparation for the next day. It was just overconfidence on Gilmore's part. They so easily overran uh, the other part of the island, actually three-fourths of the island the day before, that they just didn't think there would be any problem the next day. Yes? It was a, oh, the Requa battery? Yeah, it was uh, basically 24 58 caliber barrels. Uh, laid on just uh, on a carriage, and they had a big car a big cartridge, just a, a fixed cartridge with 24 projectiles on it. They put it in, close a big latch on it, and they just fired it all off at once. And they put another one and fire. It was very effective. I'm surprised it wasn't used in other battlefields, but they had them all over uh, Morris Island and used them quite well. They even even would roll them up forward to help support attacks and things. It was. Uh, Really, the, that was used more than the Gatling gun was during the Civil War. Yes? Uh, Kearney was awarded his medal, I believe, in the 1870s. Yes? Right. Uh, yeah, they were, um, you know, the old expression, uh, the limelight, you're in the limelight. Uh, they were, just like you used in theaters back then, they were uh, limelights, only these were called calcium lights. Uh, oxygen and ca you used a uh, uh, calcium, burnt calcium as your sort of your fi yeah, filament, and uh, it was a combination of two different gases you'd put on this and light it, and it would reflect onto the enemy fortifications. They used them both in the trench lines and on board ships, and they would light up Wagner at night 
uh, to try to spot when they were trying to fix it up. They even would light up uh, Charleston. There's a wonderful painting by Conrad Wise Chapman that shows Sumter lit up by these calcium lights, and it's a really, really neat painting. But they're fast, it's just the same thing as limelight that they used in theaters. Not that I know of, no. Nor did the sailors. There were about three freed blacks who served on the ironclads, but it gets not unusual in the Navy or for seamen to do that. But no, I've never seen any reminiscence of them. Uh, there was an article, I think, in the Charleston, one of the Charleston papers after the war about him. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Okay. Um, I want to thank Dr. Wise once again for a, a tremendous presentation. Don't forget to get your reservations in early for October 18th for Dr. McPherson for next month. And uh, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you very much. <laughs>